Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody. I tell you, I'm running out of cash to hand to the elders for all the good things they're saying. <laughs> a couple things real quick. If, if you notice with some of the cleanup that was done outside, uh, we definitely need to thank um, Edgewater Greenhouse for all the donations they gave. It was very helpful, and they even brought the cool little bulldozer thing over and grabbed a hold of trees and ripped them out of the ground, and we all kind of went, yeah, it was real manly, so it was really good. It was good stuff. I, I enjoyed watching it. It was good, so we had a good time. And here's another novel thing. I've actually had a request that is curious as to why I only walk down the middle aisle. How come I don't walk out here on the perimeter? And it wasn't sarcasm. I'm encouraged to walk around this entire building while I preach. <laughs> we'll see what the Lord does. I don't know. But let's do this. Let's please pray before we jump in. Father, you truly are good and care for your creation more than we could possibly grasp. Father, in your grace, you've given us your word to know you and to grow in you. Father, your words are true. And pray, God, you help us today by the illumination of the Holy Spirit to receive them today. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So you, this may be your first week here, but I want to go through and just explain for clarity to everyone what it is that we're doing. I think one of the most important things that we could do as a body of believers is all be on the same page. And the only way that I know to do that is to start at the beginning where God starts and move forward. And so we're in the process of just now beginning to look at the major events throughout the Old Testament that lead up to the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ our Lord. And by doing so, what, what I'm wanting everyone to get is the grand scope that the Bible is in fact, not just 66 individual books put together, but it is one cohesive book that works together in perfect harmony. And I'm hoping that as we see these pictures and these instances and these historical uh, occurrences that take place, that a renewed passion and commitment to Jesus Christ will be risen up in us. Why? Because he's not just a good teacher and he's not just some guy who did selfless things, but he is in fact God who died for sin because he loves people. I think it's important for us to come to that. Now, now next, or sorry, last week, one of the big points that we walked away from, and if you have your paper with you from your handout, which I hope you do, was the fact of the foundational truth that the Bible is God's self-revelation. It's the way he chooses to reveal himself. With that being said, I have to, I'm obligated to ask the question, who doesn't have a Bible? Every person needs a Bible. Raise your hand if you don't. We will get you one. Everyone here has a Bible? Everyone's got their Bible up? Okay, excellent. I like it. People who tell the truth. You're at church. You should. You don't want to be judged by your peers, and God sees everything, so we're good. So let me go back here and get some Bibles. Who needs some Bibles? Let's see. Now, I'm not going to throw them. Don't worry. This isn't like you're getting hot dogs at a Brewers game or anything like that. We're not, we're not going to do that. Do you mind if I sit down? Okay, I got, I'm coming over there on that side, good. See, I'm still slightly young, so I can do this. Talk to me in two years. Everybody else good? Everybody got a Bible? See, look, I'm already on the outside perimeter. Everybody see how that works? Nobody noticed it? It, it flowed naturally? We're at a good spot, I like it. The Bible is God's self-revelation. He wants to tell you about him. And of all the ways he's chosen to do that, not only has he created everything that we see, but he's chosen to do it in a special way. Now, it's one thing to know that somebody cares about you. It's one thing to have family and, oh, yeah, you may not like your family, but you love your family. You ever had those types of relationships? It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. See, I, man, I heard, mm, I think I heard a couple of amens under their breath. <laughs> yeah, I love them, but, ugh, right? I love them, but you stay home kind of thing, right? But it's nice to get a card from them or a note. 
some sort of special like, hey, I just wanted to take a moment and tell you how much you mean to me. Maybe we're long overdue in sending that to somebody else that needs to know that we love them and we care about them. God did that in spades. He has given us a revelation to unfold to say, this is who I am and this is what I have done. And what's interesting is, if you do any kind of study of a hymn that is worth singing, a song that is worth seeing, a poem that is worth reading, or even scripture, you will find out that worship consists of two things, who God is, what God has done. That is what worship consists of. He has spent 66 books as one cohesive whole to tell us that message. So here's the strange thing. Today we are hitting on who is God. Last week we talked about what the Bible is, who is God. If you notice, I don't have a who is God part two. I should probably have a who is God all the way up to like part 84 or something like that. But my goal here is to hit the overarching foundations and then later on through your personal Bible study, you can fill in some of the gaps and I hope that you would do further study on this. Now, please, if you have questions, call me, text me, send me an email, call here and use the extension, whatever you need to do. But get a hold of me because my chief concern is that you understand what we go through so that you will be changed by what God has to say. That's my goal. And I don't think people get changed any other way. So having that said, let's move on. Today we're looking at who is God. Everybody take your Bibles, turn to the book of Proverbs. This is one of the most profound things I've ever read in my life. And I'm surprised how many people we have that live life apart from this truth. Proverbs, very first chapter, right after Psalms. Proverbs chapter 1. Anytime I sit down with Nathaniel to give him his bottle, I recite this to him because, well, you'll see why. Proverbs chapter 1, look at verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, notice the transition after that. But, right? Anytime you see but, you think, think you were going this direction, but you turn around, now you're going this direction. What's the opposite we're dealing with here? Look what it says. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Plainly put, I don't want my son to be a fool. And so early on, since the day he was born, every time I get the opportunity to feed him, I recite this proverb to him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning. You know what that means? That means that's where you start. That is the starting line for the race of life. And if you're going to run it successfully, you have to start in your thinking with one foundational, prominent truth. Fearing God must be the first step. Now, have you ever heard anybody talk about God and you listen to him for a while and you're like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-uh. Uh you ever done that? All of a sudden you're like, man, that sounds really, oh, they, they don't, what God are they talking about? Is that the same God I've read about? And usually what you find is there's a great deal of pride and arrogance that surround that. The reason is, is because this understanding of who God is has been evacuated from their mindset. See, here's an interesting thing. This is a little bit of a tangent, but go with me on it. You ever read through the Psalms and you read things about, uh, what does it say? With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored your word in my heart that I might not sin against God. Everybody familiar with that one? What does he mean by heart there? Is he talking about, just get God's word in heart. Is that what he's talking about? No, of course we know that's figurative language that's pointing to a literal meaning. But what do you think it's really getting at when it's heart? We think. What's that? The core of your being, that's exactly right. It's got to settle somewhere deep. Now, here's the question. All that stuff that pours out of the core of your being, where does it have to go in order to be seen in public? What channel does it go through? It goes through the mind. 
You're right. It manifests itself in the mouth. But before it ever gets there, it's got to go through your mind to do something. If we all acted without thinking, and I'm sure you wives are nudging your husbands right now, right? If we ever did that, it looks silly, right? And all God's women said, amen. So notice, in that type of situation, it's got to go through this central processing system. What does it mean with my whole heart? I seek you. It means that my mind is consumed. It means that the fear of the Lord being the beginning, I've got to be convinced of that truth. It has to be a conviction that rests up in me. Why? Here's the reason. Because I don't want to be a fool that when God's word seeks to speak into my life, when God's got something for me, I'm going, la, 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 la. That never works, does it? It never works. This is prescriptive beyond belief. Good quote. This is my favorite guy in the world preaching. I've never heard a guy like him. He's as solid as I can find. And he wasn't scared to grow in his theology as he learned more. And I have a lot of respect for that. That shows a lot of humility. He wrote this in 1978. It's on your paper if you want to look at it. When one considers that basic to right action is right thinking, and that basic to right thinking is right thinking about what God is like, it begins to become transparently clear that our generation or any other will never begin to solve its problems until it corrects its ideas about God. 1978, I was one. Is that still true for today? Do we still have a God-thinking problem? We very much do. In fact, here's what's amazing about it. The God-thinking problem is so deeply rooted into our society that the plain explanation becomes the abstract. Let me explain to you what I mean by that because we touched on it for a minute last week. So, take your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis 1. How we think about God is foundational to everything else that flows out of our lives. And you can tell from somebody's actions whether or not they have been thinking about God and his opinion before they ever acted. Does that make sense? Before they ever acted, you can tell whether or not they had a fear or appreciation for God before that ever happened. The most important question anybody can ever ask is, who is God? And thankfully, we have the answer right here. So, Genesis 1.1. In fact, don't even look at your Bible. Let's just say it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Anybody know what the first step in studying your Bible is? Observe, observe, observe. Observation. Let me ask you a question. When you observe this one verse, what do you see? Yeah, this is interactive church, man. This ain't just sit and feed me church. This is pick up the utensils and start going for it. What do you see? Number one, what do you see? It's God. Does anybody know the name for God in this verse? Elohim. What is Elohim? He's creator. We see that. We see, I mean, that's obvious from what he's done from this verse. But what do we know about the word Elohim? I'm going to give you a hint. Some of it's on your paper that you got. See, I promise you, my questions are not hard. Just observe, observe, observe. <laughs> it's good. Elohim, and notice what it says there. This occurs 2,750 plus times in the scriptures referring to God. It says here, as him as creator. It's a plural name with a singular meaning. The I am on the end, Elohim, I am, kind of acts like the S for us in English. It gives a pluralization. Let me give you an example. You have cherub and then you have cherubim, right? That's how we say it. Why do we add the I am there? Because that I am can serve as a pluralization of those things. So when we see this idea of Elohim, they translate it God, and see this is where we need to get out our spade or get on the computer, Bible gateway or something, and get in there and dig a little bit and look at it. Elohim means something. It's plural, but it says in the beginning God did what? How come it doesn't how come that's not plural? 
Isn't it interesting that the verb in the verse is singular, but yet when we deal with the idea of Elohim, we're dealing with a plurality. How in the world does that work? See, everybody's like, whoa, need to check out right now. Is everybody following me? So let's talk about what that is and what that looks like. And let me tell you this, because we're going to touch on this again next week in order to prep us for going by verse by verse in two weeks. I love verse by verse preaching, but I got to get everybody on the, the same pathway before we get there, okay? So here's another thing. The word Elohim or El or similar words that are with it can also be used of pagan deities, false gods, those types of things. Context always determines meaning. You will hear me say that continually until I die. Context always determines the meaning that you're dealing with. So notice, he is the creator, and I've got a little bullet point down there. Within Elohim, there is a plurality in persons, but unity in essence or divine nature. Now, everybody look up here at this graphic. And if you can't tell, this is the part I drew with Microsoft Paint. And you can tell because it's not straight at all, right? You just I even tried to line up the mouse against something that was straight and do it, and still I had like fumble fingers or something. I don't know what was going on. But here's a good way to think about it. Divine, divinity, that's what God is. Does that make sense? He is divine. So in the middle, you see it's what number one. It's not too big, you can't see it. I thought about putting that on here, but I figured everybody had to bring their magnifying glasses. Better to throw it up here. God is divine. That's what he is. And he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. However, the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and all the way back around and vice versa in, in return. Everybody see that? So in person, there is variation that we're dealing with. But as far as divinity or his very essence of who he is, and sorry, I'm in everybody's way. See, it's the reason why I sit down here. I'm in everybody's way. In essence of who he is, it is perfectly unified. Now, that doesn't mean that the God operates, that the Father operates apart from the Son or the Son operates apart from the Holy Spirit. They are in complete harmony with one another. And actually, when you search in the New Testament, you find out that they experienced perfect love and perfect unity before anything was ever created. Beautiful stuff. No God like this God. What are some other things we observe about Genesis 1-1? We have God, Elohim, is a plurality. He exists in a trinity, got varying roles in the people, but they're all together collectively created in the divine essence. And understand, that's a very plain interpretation of an extremely complex way that God works. We'll never understand the trinity fully, but I'm trying my hardest to make it digestible, okay? What else do we see? Something interesting at the very beginning. We missed it. We got, we got so antsy about getting to God that we missed something. In the beginning, he already what? He already existed. In the Why do you think in the beginning was written there? Who did that benefit? Us. I need a time frame in order to put the pinpoint on the map. Anybody ever use Google Maps? I want to go here and you drop that pin right there. That's where I need to be in history. Well, notice God's already doing stuff. God's already there, has been there, and is just waiting for us to catch up mentally with what he is able to do. In the beginning, he's already there, and he is creating. Time was created for our benefit so we could begin to maybe start to fathom and understand who God is, kind of. Everybody see that? So much greater than what, we, than what we grasp. So much greater than what we get. In the beginning, God created the heavens... Everything above us and the earth, everything below us. All that you see surrounding you, God created. Does that set well with everybody? Some people it doesn't. In fact, some people lose their minds that anybody would literally believe Genesis 1 through 11. You talk to any philosophy, ethics, uh, biology, college professor, you usually find that they're looking to rip somebody apart because they're so naive to believe that God could actually create everything. What's the alternative answer? Anybody know? What is it? Evolution. Stuff was there, and then stuff became stuff. And it took a lot of time 
for that stuff to be other stuff. Now, I don't know about you, but a duck-billed platypus is really cool. Anybody ever seen those before? Man, they're furry, but kind of scary, but you, you want to hang out with them for a while, right? It's, they're very interesting animals. How did that get there? Was it that a whale decreased over millions and millions of years and got to this point and finally evolved? Anybody ever heard of reproduction? It didn't just morph. You see what I'm saying? God is very clear about this is what I'm doing. And he is a God of great, intense, artistic variation. Here's what's interesting, an attribute. So everybody, look at your paper here. I give you a definition of what an attribute is. An attribute is a property which is intrinsic to its subject. In other words, it's, it's, how, it's, it's ways that we better understand the subject at hand. And what's interesting here is you see three attributes that are screaming off the page to us to let us know who God is. Now, notice, and this is important to understand, the Bible is not a systematic theology book. You don't open it up to the first page and it tells you everything you could possibly know about God on those pages and then when it's done, it moves on to the next subject. It contains all the information to do that, but that's not the way God reveals himself. He reveals himself progressively. And so he shows you some things here and you go down the line a little bit and he shows you some things here and you begin to start putting it together as you start to go through. And that's the reason why we're doing what we're doing is because that's the way God has revealed himself. But there are three prominent things. I've got them written at the bottom here. Notice number one, he's omnipotent. He is all-powerful. Notice that I don't have written on here, he can do anything. Can God sin? No. In fact, does God even like sin? He hates it. I'm so glad to hear you say that. Do you realize that there are people today that say that God is okay with sin because it furthers his purposes? He's okay with it because it brings him greater glory when people sin. Does that sound like a God you want to worship? Any, any of you, any you uh, girls ever had the boyfriend that's contradictory? Maybe I want to spend time with you, but he ain't there, right? What's that guy called? Loser, right? That's what he's called. And you, he don't stick around very long. If you're a smart girl, you're like, got to go. I need something. Get it. I need something mo more coherent and consistent. Somebody who's going to be more according to reality that I need to live in is going to be truthful. That's what we need. No losers. God is good. In fact, when God created everything, we don't have in the first verse, and God created sin. Yet there are a lot of Christians who believe that. He is all-powerful, meaning that when he exercises his attributes, when he exercises his ability, he does it all according to a standard. And that standard is everything that is right. God only does right things. Now, here's a question. Can you get with a person like that? Yeah, you'll hang out with that person. They're only going to do right things, and I can always, even when it seems difficult and I don't understand, rely upon the fact that God is going to do right things in this? That'll carry you till the cows come home. I was hoping that go over a little bit better with the dairy culture here. <laughs> Maybe not. I wish the cows would stay out there longer. I'm tired of milking them. Anyway, moving on. So he's all powerful, fully able to do anything that he needs to and wants to do. He chooses what he wants to do in righteousness. We also see something else that he does in this one verse. He is eternal. He's always existed. He's always been. He is the un caused cause now some people try to stump you well if god created everything where did god come from ask him that's usually a good response won't you sit down and get in the word and ask god where he came from i'm sure he'll show you if you seek him sincerely right yeah he's the uncaused cause he has never been and there always must be something that sets other things into motion if you draw that back to its just logical conclusion God has always existed. Another thing which is interesting is, and a lot of people don't talk about this, I'm really surprised. This is one of my favorite attributes about God, is his aseity. The aseity of God, and here's what this means, he is self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything. He is not dependent on anything. 
When we are in bouts of sin or rebellion or we just have hard hearts or unforgiveness or whatever it may be, we never thwarted anything that God wanted to be. We're just suffering as we lengthen the gap of our fellowship with him apart. Does that make sense? Still in relationship with him, but our fellowship with him gets all messed up because we entertain that sin. We didn't mess up his plan. Get this. This is an important thing to remember. God doesn't need me and he doesn't need you. We are not so indispensable to him that he is going to be rendered insufficient to complete what he desires to complete. You know what the beautiful thing about it is? He doesn't need us, but he wants us. Is that not love? I don't need you, but I want you. And I want you so badly, it's going to cost me great personal expense of my son in order to make that relationship happen. Now that can preach and we can do a benediction right now and go home. Because that's an amazing act of God's grace. See, our problem is, is a lot of times we, and maybe not us because we're believers, but the world in particular doesn't want God, but they need God. Everybody see how that works? The world doesn't want him, but they need him. He doesn't need us, but he wants us. It sounds like there needs to be a meeting. Everybody see how important that is? So let's flip our papers over. God's act of creation is a historical event. It literally happened. I don't agree with that. That's cool. Read Genesis 1-1 again. It is a historical event, and it's been placed there in the Scriptures for our benefit. God wants to answer the question, God, why? Well, what is this all about? He wants to answer all those existential questions questions that second semester college students seem to come to after their professors have scrambled their their brains like eggs. He answers those questions plainly for us. Now, the next thing we need to know about God, not only is he the creator, but he's also sovereign. He is sovereign. And it's important for us to understand that. So notice what it says here on your paper. Turn with me to Psalms. And if you remember where Proverbs were, just back up just a little bit from that. Words, was, words. I'm from Kentucky. I don't know how to talk. I said something the other day, and my wife, being an English teacher, looked over me and goes, where did you learn to talk? <laughs> the public school system of Kentucky. Thank you very much. So I'm from Indiana. I, I always told everybody I was a missionary to Indiana. I moved there in the middle of my sophomore year of high school. But everything before that, born, raised in Kentucky. So just love me, okay? I want you to see this. Psalm 119, we're going to look at verse 89. Oh, I'm in the wrong one. Not that 89, this 89. Here we go. Forever, O Lord, forever, O Lord, your what? Your word is settled in heaven. You think the word's got some prominence here? Notice that. Your word, what you have said, what you have promised, what you have decreed, it's settled, it's set, it's good. So notice, your word is settled in heaven, your faithfulness endures to all generations. He will always be consistent in his character. He will always live up to everything he has said exactly as he has said it. Always. He never fails. Notice the next one. You establish the earth, creation, right? He's the creator. And it does what? It endures, what's the other translation say? It stands. It keeps going. It abides. It remains. Not only is he the creator, he's the sustainer. Now, see, here's the amazing thing, because there's a theory that's out there saying that God kind of, anybody ever seen those chatter teeth that have the little feet? And they kind of just hop along, and you're like, oh, that's cute, but you don't want to spend the $5 on it, you just want to watch it, that kind of thing. Some people believe that the earth, for God, was like he wound it up like chatter teeth, and then he just let it go. And whatever it does, it does. And this gives them the excuse to not believe that God is personal in their faith and dying to have a relationship with them. And I literally mean that because of Jesus Christ. You see what I'm saying? It gives an excuse to not come to an accountability or a responsibility to an almighty. But that's not how God worked, did he? 
No, he creates it, but he also sustains it. He intimately is involved in preserving it until the time when heaven and earth will pass away and there will be a new heavens and a new earth. He alone controls that. Now look what it says here, verse 31. They continue this day according to your, what's that say? Ordinances, any other different word? It says ordinances? What is an ordinance? A what? A law. And usually how's that get handed down? It's either spoken or it's written. Everybody see the connection to the word here. Notice that. Think of it with that mindset. They continue this day according to your ordinances, according to your decisions, your judgments. And notice this last little part underneath there. For, here's the explanation, all are your servants. All are your servants. He is sovereign. Now, I want you to pay very close attention to what I've written on your paper, okay? Because some of you will have three, four, Man, I can't get double-column Word Microsoft to work with me. I don't know. It drives me crazy. But just go with it, okay? Some of you got one, two. You're good. Three, four, you think I'm weird. There are two views of sovereignty that, that prevail right now. I want to I give them both to you, and then I want to make a comment and then give you a direction. Many hold that God meticulously controls every thought and action of his creation and that nothing occurs outside of his hidden will. This would include every sin committed by man. This is how the explanation is given that God actually condones and is okay with, and if you trace it back far enough, is actually the author of sin because everything is going to exist for his glory, and so therefore he controls everything, even the sins that people commit. Okay, that's one view. The next view. Others hold that God is the ruler of all things and that all glory is due him, but created beings are free to accept or reject his will for their lives and are thus responsible and accountable before God for their rejection of him. Now here's my encouragement. It's got it written here. When faced with differing views, Scripture must give us our theology. We must never impose our theology on Scripture. In other words, we should never come to the Word of God anticipating what we want it to say. But we should allow it to speak in its plain, literal meaning as we would read anything else because that's how God wants to communicate with us to be known. And then we should receive that. And if our thinking is all cattywampus over here, according to what he has said, the, cha the, the change needs to happen. This truth should change us. See, that's how you get saved as a Christian. See, I said that last week and only one person asked me about it. I was kind of disappointed. Christians can get saved. Anybody got a problem with that? How do you define saved? I'll be here Monday morning at 8 a.m. Come by. We'll sit down. We'll have a talk. See, I love, I love sticking stuff out there. And you guys are going, what? And I'm just like, let's move on. It's great. We'll get to that. How do Christians get saved? Let me go ahead and explain it. When you become a believer in Jesus Christ, you are now saved from the penalty of sin. You're no longer going to die. Because the wages of sin is death, and everything that we've earned in this life is death, and we deserve to be dead, rotting, burning, tormented. We're dastardly people. So when we recognize the gospel, Jesus Christ died for your sins. He's risen from the grave. And what does God say plainly? He loves you. He gave his son. If you behave, believe, think, praise God. If it's behave, I'm in trouble. I'm like the Yosemite Sam of the century, right? It's not good. But if you believe, you will not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, somebody questioned me on this one time, not here, but at a bookstore one time. Everlasting life means forever life. Make sure we know that. If you believe, you have everlasting life. That's your justification. You've been declared righteous by God, saved from the penalty of sin which is death but when a christian who has now the indwelling holy spirit hears the word of god and it changes their thinking to say wait a second i was thinking about or i've handled this situation wrong or i've approached this in an ill manner and god's word has touched the button of the holy spirit in me that's saying you're wrong 
and we need to repent. We need to change our thinking about this situation. You just got saved. Saved from what? Saved from the power of sin in your life to keep you from growing in Christ's likeness. That's how Christians get saved. Because we stop acting like the world, because the word fused with the spirit convicts us of something different. That's why Sundays are so important. Sundays are so important because the public reading and receiving of the Word of God is meant to transform saints as they stream out of this building. Everybody know this isn't the church, right? This is the church. This building is not the church. If we're not being saved from this flesh that keeps trying to drag us down. I heard one person describe it like a corpse that's just hanging over our bodies and we're trying to run a marathon while it is. This is kind of scary. I followed Chuck around the Edgewater greenhouse like this the other day. It about killed him. He couldn't handle it. Told him I was Igor, the assistant. He didn't know. Scared him to death. But you try to run a marathon with something like this dead hanging on you? Anybody ever tried to run a marathon with a dead person hanging on to you? No, we would never do that. Why do we do it every day then? We have the prescription to rescue us right here, to save us from that fruitless life. See, that's, that's, we're getting there, but I want to preach on it so bad. Does that make sense though, Roxanne? Does that make sense? Crazy. Man, I hope that, I hope that saved you today. I hope somebody, I hope one of you got saved today. That's good. Yes. Yes. And that's the beauty of it. And then when you finally pass away off this earth and the Lord takes you home, you have then been saved from the presence of sin. Salvation is in three tenses. And in, in I tell you what, when you read a lot of authors, you'll find that the problem is when they tell you that works are necessary for salvation, it's because they only have one view of salvation and they read everything like that. What says salvation what well, says if you pray for this person, they will be saved. So people can't get saved without praying for them. That's not the salvation they're talking about. Saved from what? Salvation is a process. Justification is instantaneous. But your sanctification will take all of your life. And the more time that you spend in this and applying it, it's not having head knowledge. I would much rather talk to somebody who looked at the verse that said, love others as I have loved you, and they are seeking to demonstrate that in their life, than somebody who has all 66 books memorized. Because that person usually becomes prideful and arrogant and demeaning to other people. That is not what the scriptures were meant to do. The scriptures never saved someone unto being a jerk. The scriptures did save people unto being little Christ, to be like Christ. Now, I'm off here a little bit. I'm still doing good on time. Okay. I'm trying to watch. Man, I could preach forever, but I don't want to do that to you guys. So I understand. we got places to be, things to do. It's good. So let's move on to this. Now, here's what I want you to see. Notice that on the back page here. Oh, oh, real quick, let me tell you this. As far as God being sovereign, I've written a paper. It's about 20 pages long. Okay? I actually just submitted it to a, a, a theological institution to see if they'll print it in a journal. Uh, I've printed up about 10 copies. I think some people have already taken some. They're sitting out there on the desk if you'd like to read it and then ask me questions about it. It, it is what I see biblically speaking about the view of sovereignty that we should understand. What does the Bible say about sovereignty? That's what I'm concerned about. And so if you'd like to grab a copy of that, if for some reason you go out there, they're gone, and you'd like a copy, let me know. I'll print you up some more. I'll, I'll try to get them to you. Does that sound good? Okay. I, if, I, if we ever touch upon subjects and I've written something that where I can better explain because we can't cover it all here, I will try to make that available to you because my goal is that we all learn, we all grow, we all sharpen one another, and we all become a bright burning light for Christ in this community. That's my goal. So notice I have a little light there. The character, attributes, and sovereignty of God are vehemently opposed to man, to mankind, to the creation. Sadly, this is the case with the introduction of the fall. We're not there yet, but sadly, this is our lot. Now, everybody, take your Bibles, turn over to the right to Jeremiah. This is the passage that we will end on. It's very powerful. Again, there's a lot I could pull from here in order to be able to explain this because the Word of God is just so full of explanations of who God is. But I, I want to get some things that may be more pertinent that stick with us and really um, change our thinking as we need to be. And let me give you some context here. Jeremiah 
Anybody know what, what people often called him? He's the what? The weeping prophet. Why? Let me ask you this. Who responded to his ministry? Not a person. Here's the question. Was Jeremiah a failure? Why was he not a failure, but nobody responded to his ministry? I mean, don't we live in a results-driven age? If Jeremiah really knew God, wouldn't we see thousands of people coming to Jesus? I mean, he was a prophet. Why was he not? I mean, what's, what's the problem here? Why was he not a failure? Here's his book for us to read. And here's what's amazing. When you see things like God speaking to Jeremiah, Jeremiah did everything that God said. That's what makes him a success. It's not the results. It's the fact that Jeremiah was obedient. That's what makes him admirable. Very important lesson. Again, hopefully some of you just got saved from that. But it's good. It's important. Look at chapter 9. Look at verse 23. The people of Israel are disregarding God's law, forsaking fellowship with him, not giving right sacrifices, and God is bringing in judgment on them to get their attention. And look what it says. Thus says the Lord, verse 23. Now, don't, don't just run over that. Anytime that a prophet has thus says the Lord, get this, he is the mouthpiece that is speaking God's word on behalf of God to people. Everybody with me? And we talk about the importance of God's word. So this isn't some light ordeal. He is speaking the words of God. And here's what God says. Let not the wise man glory or boast or praise in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory or boast or praise in his might. Nor let the rich man glory or boast or praise in his riches. Now stop and look at all those words there. Notice that you've got, if you've got the NASB, boast, boast, boast. If you've got the New King James, you've got glory, glory, glory. In other words, this is what is pouring forth from you because it's what's most consuming you is the idea. We boast in things. In fact, boast is an evidence. When we boast about something, it's an evidence of what we hold dear in our hearts. And notice what God's evaluation is when he licks his finger and holds it to the wind of how man is doing on earth, here's what he finds. He finds that, number one, wise men boast in their wisdom. How smart they are. What a great plan they came up with. Man, we really devised this out, and it just went off without a hitch, and whoa, I'm just such a smart guy. That's one avenue. Notice the next one. The next one says, let not the mighty man glory in his might. Well, nobody else could have moved that but me. Man, you should have seen Vern yesterday pulling those trees. He, he, he ceased to be a man and he became a dude right before my eyes. It's almost like I had to watch him and it's almost like everything went in slow motion. It was amazing. Is he here? There he is. Awesome. I should, I should have known because his face is extremely red right now. It's good. But man, it was great. But should we boast in Vern's might? No. And should he resist the temptation to boast in his might? Yeah. Is that where our heart wants to lead us? Oh, man. If anybody's a big fan of me, it's me, right? Notice it. Nor let the rich man boast in his riches. Well, I got enough money. If we just throw enough money at a problem, it'll go away. Oh, well, well we need to be involved helping those missionaries. I got a good idea. Let's just throw enough money that way. Oh, they need enough money that way and just showering people some people would say today some of you younger generation you're gonna make it rain dollar bills everywhere and just spilling them everywhere sometimes you see some of these hip-hop videos and all these guys are wearing these gold chains and like money's falling everywhere and you're just like what is going on it's like some kind of weird i don't know strange disneyland but anyway moving on but here's the interesting thing i want you to see about this Wisdom, might, and riches, here's what they all are in our hearts. They are God substitutes. And because we're boasting in it, it is showing what we value. Man, I, I'm, I'm strong enough to handle this. See, we, we never thought I'd think of that. This problem's coming, but I'm, I'm strong enough to get it. I don't need to seek the Lord on this instance to ask for his help. I, I'm good. I'm good. Man, I'm good is the greatest lie I've ever heard. 
It's the greatest lie I've ever heard because it's pride. And man, we, we live off of pride, especially us guys. We never want our pride hurt. We want to have a good standing with everybody. Man, understand this. The church is not perfect people. It's not. This place is a hospital. And we all need to take in the word of God so that we all not do better, think better. Being a Christian is never about being perfect. It's about becoming more reliant on God. That's what it's about. It's about leaning on him more and more until we just fall helplessly in his arms and let, us, let him drag us wherever he wants us to go. That's what it is. It's never about being perfect. All of these things are God substitutes. There are reasons for why we don't need God to be so intimate in our life. But here's what God says in verse 24 to grab us. Look what he says. But, here's that change, right? That 180 degree shift. Let him who glories, who boasts, glory in this. Okay, stop. God is going to tell you and I what our hearts need to be boasting about. Okay? So is, is it wrong to boast? No. He's just going to let you know what the right object should be. So let's boast about this. Let's worship about this. Let's praise about this. Let's glory in this. And what is it? What's God got for us? Come on, God, give me what you got. Give me what you got. What can I glory in? What can I boast in? Come on, come on, come on. We're like three-year-olds, right? But look what he says. That he understands and knows me. That's not very exciting. Pause, pause. Just calm your horses down. That he understands me. That we have prudence toward God that we are actually acting in our lives with care and thought. See, here's the interesting thing. When you deal, especially in New Testament times, whenever the Greeks wanted to talk about knowing something, it was all because a bunch of smart guys were laying around in some stone courtyard just thinking weird things. That was like the Greek mindset. It was all about philosophy and Aristotle and Socrates and all this weird stuff. But a Jewish mindset of knowing something, a Jewish mindset was until you're doing it in your life, you don't really know it. See, that's what was different about that. If you want to boast in something, boast in this. That you understand that you're starting to grasp what God wants out of your life. That you're starting to get who he is so that he becomes the central reason for why you do what you do. How you think about what you think in this life. Why? Because if I fear him, that's my starting point of knowledge, of real knowledge. Of really knowing. Why is that? Because if God is true, and he most certainly is, he sets the standard for all reality. Everybody with me? Anybody had to put their waiters on? Okay, we're good. So good, excellent, good. So notice, it's not just that he understands me, but notice it also says here that he knows me. That we have a comprehension that's not just, yeah, I know that. It has discernment attached to it. Let me ask you this. I mean, think about it for just a second. You don't have to raise your hand or answer out loud, but just think for a moment. Does the fact that an almighty creator who has made heaven and earth, who has always been here, who relies on nothing and is all-powerful to operate according to what is right and true. Does that affect the way you live? Does it change the decisions that you make? Does it help you think twice about what you're participating in and what you're not participating in? How does it help you deal with your finances? How does it help you in raising your children? How does it help you when somebody comes to you in advice? How does it soften the wall that's been built in relationships? How does God make a difference? Because if he is who he says he is, then we don't have anything to do but boast in knowing him. That is the striving goal. How well do we know our God? So notice, boast in this. Can you boast in this? Is this something that you can that your heart wants to talk about? Boasting, knowing, understanding God. Look what he says. Here's what he wants us to know. That I am the Lord. Exercising, man, great word. It's been missing from more recent translations. He exercises loving kindness. This is the Hebrew word hesed. And I asked Pastor Steve, I said, Pastor Steve, give me a definition of hesed. He didn't hesitate. It's God's loyal love. It is God's loyal love toward you. God loyally loves you. 
See, that's a great thing about God, not needing us. Even when we're not loyal to him, he still loyally loves you. But understand, he's not all mushy like a ball pit at Chuck E. Cheese or something like that. That's not how he is. Look what it says next. Not just love and kindness, but he also exercises judgment. He has no problem spanking his kids. Why is that? Here's the reason why. Because he's a good father. Because grace is never about, well, just whatever. That's not grace. That's called license is what that's called, to let people run amok. Grace is how you handle the situation, doing what is right and handling it well. That's how God handles this. He exercises loyal love towards us. He can also handle judgment, dealing with us. But look what it says after that, another thing, and righteousness in the earth. In other words, everything he does is according to a consistent standard. He's always right because he sets the standard of right. Does everybody see how trustworthy he is? Everybody see how stable God is? You ever met somebody who's not stable, right? And wives are doing this again, right, to their husband? We know people who aren't stable. Could we not use some stability in our life? Oh, man, Nothing feels better than leaning against something that you know is not going to give way. That's good. Why? Because it allows you to rest and allows you to rely. Everybody see how that works? Man, what better thing to rest and rely in than who God is, who he is. Now on your papers. Notice I only gave you one fill in the blank. I want to make it easy on everybody this week. But this is vitally important because this is going to be a theme that you're going to see interwoven throughout everything else we look at. The greatest enemy of affirming a sovereign God who is the creator and sustainer of the universe is, it's not Satan, it's unbelief. That's what it is. It's not believing what God has plainly communicated you will find that unbelief will be the bear trap of your life all the time. If we simply believe what God has said, what is God, in fact, that's a great directive for life. What has God said about the problem? That's what we'll do. Just in complete abandon. I'll just trust God no matter what. Now that's how we all act when we come back from youth rallies and retreats, right? I'm ready to charge the gates of hell and all you got's like a water pistol trying to get by not working, man. You need something stronger. And you will find that unbelief is what keeps you from the right thing. And it is what will diminish your relationship, fellowship-wise, with God. Unbelief. Unbelief crowds in and says, God said what? That's not true. Well, wait, what did God say? No. Now, let me ask you a question. Who does that sound like? It sounds like Satan, doesn't it? Satan's not trying to get you to believe in him. He's just trying to get you to not believe in God. That's the point. Now, here's an interesting thing to close. I gave you homework down at the bottom. Ask three people outside of this church, outside of this church, hanging out the water cooler, on the phone. I don't know. Anybody anybody actually work around a water cooler anymore? What's that? They're They're what? They're bubblers? Forgive me. (laughs) Not up on the... Next time you're hanging out at the cheese chalet. (laughs) But ask somebody the question. And here's here's a reason you want to phrase it just like this. To you, who is God? Notice we didn't say just who is God. You want to know what that person deeply thinks in the core of their being. What is resting in their heart about the most decisive question you could ever answer? Because let's be honest, when you come to terms with who God is, and if you come to terms with who the biblical God is, the true creator and sustainer of all things, your life can't help but to be changed. There are so many people that live with a fragmented view of God so that they don't have to change or be different or respond or feel accountable in any way and you know what and and keep your ears keep your ears on when you when you hear their response and if you can ask yourself the question 
are they suffering from unbelief? Are they suffering from unbelief in this? For there is no God. We're actually going to deal with that in a couple of weeks. Okay. Well, that's good. Tell them you fear the Lord, and that's the beginning of your knowledge. That'd be a good place to start. Do we have time to answer that question and talk about it? I love it. You guys are gung-ho. I like it because the people that don't want to do that, they don't say anything because they don't want to seem like the, the knot on the log. Thank you, guys. Thanks for letting the people that want to do this do that. Here's a question. What do you do when it says, when, when you talk, well, there is no God. How do you deal with that? That's a good question. Anybody ever run into that? Raise your hand. The fool says in their heart, there is no God. Psalm chapter 14, verse 1. Anybody know anything about Romans 1, verses 18 through 32, I believe it is, about how they suppress truth? Let's look at that. I wasn't planning on going here. This is a bonus. No, don't be sorry. If you got questions, let's answer them. Let's see what God's word has to say. What does God have to say about this? Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, look at verse 18. And again, if you have somebody that's not very familiar with the Bible, reach over, help them get to Romans chapter 1, please. For the wrath of God is revealed. Notice that's in the present tense. It is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Anybody ever watched something on TV and just been appalled at what you see? You're like, what in the world? In fact, you do that in Walmart. You're walking through, you're looking at those magazine covers. You're like, what is going on? Is that the way women should dress? Is that the things they should be talking about in Cosmo magazine? No. Should it surprise us? Is that the way the world wants to handle things? No, but what are they doing? They're suppressing the truth with unrighteousness. They are promoting unrighteous behavior, which unrighteousness is just a fruit of unbelief. Because I don't believe that God is over all things, because I don't believe that I'm ultimately accountable to him, because I don't believe that I'm going to answer one day for the wrong that I've done in rejecting him and not wanting anything to do with what he has to say in my life. Because of that, this is the outpouring of what you'll see. It's the fruit of unbelief. All of that. They're suppressing the truth. We don't want you to see the truth, and so we're going to put a lot of dirty things in front of your mind so that you can't think straight. See, Everybody thought this baby shower was going to start at 1045. I laughed at that when I saw it in the book. I was like, you think I'll be done preaching by then? What? Just kidding. Ladies, if you're in here, my sincere apologies. But look at this, verse 19. Because, now here's a great thing. Anytime you're studying your Bible, when you see the word because, they're getting ready to unveil some good reasons to you about what's going on. Because what may be known of God is... What's it say? Manifest. What's your say? Evident. Evident. Has God made himself known? He has. In fact, here's the interesting thing. And this sounds blasphemous. I promise it's not. You don't need a Bible to know that God exists. You just need to open your eyes and look around. Such perfect order. I mean, does anybody know how much information is kept in one cell in your body? more than all the libraries of the world put together. Did that just happen? I don't think so. I think that God, through his creation, is screaming at people to get their attention. And everybody's running around like fools. La, 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 la. Notice, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. Why? For God has shown it to them. God's not hiding. God is never behind a rock somewhere going, bet you can't find me. He doesn't do that in creation, and he doesn't do that in his word. He says, here it is, plain as day, and it's going to be hard for you to swallow because it's true, and everything in us operates in unbelief. 
In fact, you'd be surprised. You start doing an inventory through your life and you look at the Word of God and you go, good grief, there's a lot more unbelief in me than what I thought. Why? Because the Word of God is a light that exposes that darkness in it. It's like the cockroaches that scatter when you flip on the lights. Oh my goodness! There's more than what I anticipated. God's made himself known. He's not hiding. It's plain for everybody to see, but what does everybody do? Unrighteousness, 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 unrighteousness. And if all I can do is take this and try to cover it up the best I can, we can't really see what's there. Crazy. And I promise you, I live like that every day. I make that mistake every day. Somewhere in my life, I operate in unbelief, and I need to be corrected by the Word of God. I do. Notice it says here, verse 20, for since the creation of the world, uh-oh, where'd that just take us to? Genesis 1-1, didn't it? Since the day that the world was created, look what it says, his invisible attributes, pause. Think of that. The attributes of God, they're invisible. You can't see them, okay? His invisible attributes are what? Hold on, back up. Did the Bible just contradict itself? God is showing us not seeable stuff. That's like from Doctor Who or something. That's cool. Since creation, those things that can't be seen about God, God's been showing you. It's invisible things that you can observe. I just got saved. Because that's amazing. Only God can do that. Since creation, the invisible attributes have been clearly seen. And look what he says about those things. Being understood by the things that are made. His creation points to the creator. No one looks at an automobile and said, well, that's nice that that just happened out here in the parking lot. (laughs) It was at a factory. Guys, put it together. Somebody molded that metal. And when you break it down to its most, I can't even say this word, infinitesimal parts, It was all dust and rock and and blah at one time. It had always been here since God created it. We had to manipulate, fashion, form, melt down, build up, strengthen, harden, paint. Hopefully you had good breaks. And next thing you know, you've got the result of a creator. Everybody see how it's been pieced together and God is saying it's like a billboard in front of everybody. But look what he says here. It's been understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power in Godhead. His eternal power. What's that? That's that's his omnipotence. That's the attribute we saw in Genesis 1-1. And his Godhead, the fact that God exists, the fact that there is a sovereign that we are answerable to. He is the creator and we are his creatures. And just naturally understanding that, I'm answerable to him. Now here's the scary part. So that they are what? Without what? Excuse. That word in the Greek is apologia. It's where we get a well-reasoned defense from 1 Peter 3.15. God has made himself so plainly known in creation that no one is excusable for not recognizing his presence. See, this is how people get judged in unbelief. Well, I just didn't know. No, you knew. Because everything around you was testifying to my existence. You are without a well-reasoned excuse for denying me. Now, here's the question everybody asks. I know we're on like Tangent City. It's like the Yellow Brick Road. It just keeps going. But then the question everybody asks is, well, wait, what about those people with the grass skirts that and have never heard about God? What about them? What about if they never know? What about them? It's evident. It's correct. So, so we don't want to contradict what God's word says. But let me ask you a question. Somebody sitting out there, fire's going. They're looking around. Some of them worship the sun god, moon god, whatever, man. But they come to this realization of there's obviously something greater than me. Would you say that that might be a safe thing that they would observe as they contemplate their surroundings? They're not distracted by ESPN. You see what I'm saying? So that's all they got to do is to live and dwell and utilize their surroundings in order to survive. Do you think 
that if some tribe out in the middle of nowhere comes to that recognition, God will not stir the hearts of his church who hold the gospel to step out in missions. You think that's how missionaries get started? I mean, nobody's sitting here and going, man, we sing just as I am 56 times and I'm ready to go to Zimbabwe. That doesn't happen. But what does happen is people have responded to the revelation that they have been given by God through the creation and God says, watch this. And he sparks people, develops a fire in them. Why? Because if these people don't hear about Jesus Christ, they are going to burn forever in the lake of fire. That's reality. That's not comic book. That's not make-believe. And that is how the motivation to get on fire for missions starts. People who don't have the truth start responding to the truth that they do have, and the people that now have the truth are obligated to go and share that truth. The most tragic thing I've ever seen, and I've actually talked to a person this happened to, is somebody who received the call to go preach and did not take it. How much blood is on that man's hands? And his life is a mess right now. All because when God said go, he said, nah. Everybody see why this, everybody see how intertwined all this is? And God wants to be known. He is dying for people to know him. He gave his son great personal expense. And he invites, whosoever will come, take of the water of life. Anybody know? Freely. Freely. Because Jesus pays it all and offers it to us freely. I better pray before I preach more. And I promise I'm not going to preach pray, okay, where I keep making sure. So let's bow our heads. God, I pray that we become ignited by this truth that we see. Father, you are a sovereign creator, amazing in all that you do good in your ways, operating according to righteousness, not needing us whatsoever, but wanting us. Father, I pray that just sinks into our minds, that it captivates the heart, that it tears down any hardness of heart or or walls that we've built up. God, you desire to have intimate personal relationship with us every day, speaking to us through your word, Desiring for us to just trust that, live it out more and more. Save us, God, from unbelief, the things that seek to draw us away from your word. Correct our thinking. Father, may we be renewed today in our understanding that when people say there is no God, that the the creation testifies, gives evidence of your wonderful attributes, your eternal power, your great glory. You are screaming out to the world, be saved. Thank you, God, that you've seen fit to provide salvation. We pray to the name of Christ, the mighty name of Christ. Amen.